if you're new to this whole world of baby led weaning and starting solid foods, you might still be on the fence as to whether this approach is going to work for you. And if that's the case, I want to send you my free feeding guide called Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby? This is a guide that contains a decision tree map that you can work your way through to determine if this is the right approach for you guys and then when it's time to start. Grab your copy of Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby on my website at babyledweaning.co slash resources. I was doing my breakfast dishes this morning, turned the garbage disposal on, and then heard that terrible noise when you know something is in the disposal, but like you can totally tell the damage has already been done. Sure enough, it was an easy peasy tiny spoon, totally shredded, which if I've learned anything about these baby lead weaning spoons from Easy Peasy is that the garbage disposal and the dog both love them. And I was bummed because it's one of my favorite colors that they make, the light gray line, which is called pewter. But my garbage disposal disaster, I guess it came at just the right time because Easy Peasy is having their annual Mother's Day sale from this Friday to Sunday, so May 10th to 12th. You can get 20% off all of the Easy Peasy feeding gear with the affiliate discount code BLWMOM on orders of $50 or more. So this is a great time to stock up at 20% off because my regular Easy Peasy code is usually only for 10% off. So this bump up to 20% off is nice, but it's just for three days. So head to easypeasyfun.com to grab tiny spoons, their tiny cups, and the best suction mats and bowls for baby lead weaning. They have a really cool new bundle maker on their website if you want to group or piece a few items together or If you just don't want to think about it, then just grab one of the Easy Peasy First Foods sets. It has everything you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby led weaning. That code is BLWMOM for 20% off Easy Peasy orders of $50 or more now through Sunday, May 12th at easypeasyfun.com. And happy Mother's Day to you. I remember having so much fear that she would like the sugary foods more than she would like like healthy foods. I remember like wanting to go out of my way to like make sure her first foods were the right first foods. And that was a doozy looking back at it. <laughs> hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Well, hello and welcome back. This is part two of a two-part series, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. This is an interview with Amy Severson. She is a registered dietitian and an intuitive eating counselor. She's also the co-author of a new book called How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. So I interviewed Amy's co-author, Sumner, in episode 210. And now I'm going to interview Amy because they have kind of different backgrounds. They're coming at this topic of how to raise an intuitive eater from different places. And Amy is a registered dietitian, as is Sumner, but Amy's work focuses on body positivity, fat acceptance, and intuitive eating through a social justice lens. So she is a private practice dietitian who does not believe in a one-size-fits-all approach to nutrition and health. She works with clients to make health and nutrition fit into their current life. So she's a big proponent of the health at every size model, which she's going to be talking about. And as I mentioned, she's an intuitive eating counselor. So she's a proponent of the intuitive eating approach to food. So her book that she co-wrote with Sumner is called How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. And with no further ado, I'm so excited to welcome Amy Severson onto the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know you've been probably very busy promoting your book, which is called How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. So thank you for taking the time to be here because you guys are super busy. But before we dive in and talk about the book and how to actually raise an intuitive eater, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to become an anti-diet dietitian? Absolutely. I've been a dietitian for seven years, probably at this point. I went to school to be a dietitian, partly because I wanted to get better at my own eating disorder at the time. It seemed like a good path to take, I guess, to do that. And I think that's a pretty common trait, trope with a lot of dietitians. So I did that. And it was an interesting experience. Um, I was always the biggest one in my class. I was, uh, I've never been a thin person. So I was always a lot bigger than all the other to be dietitians in my class. And I also was always really uncomfortable with prescribing diets, prescribing really restrictive like weight loss plans, especially is because we were kind of being given these little bits of information like this probably won't work and weight loss is super like reliable. And we have absolutely no evidence to support this, but eat small, frequent meals. Like, <laughs> But when someone looks like this, it was like, what is going on? Um, I remember being really confused and like, but we just learned something different in another class and I don't understand why we're doing this now. So that was a very interesting experience, but I was always like kind of just weird about the diets and the like calorie restriction and I think I probably was aware somewhere in in my brain that it was uh, problematic and it was like painful for a lot of people. So do you, okay, so you graduate from your dietetics program. Did you do a dietetic internship or coordinate a program? And then like after you got your RDN credential, how did you decide to like make this your passion and path of work? After I graduated, I ended up taking a little bit of time off, partly because it's impossible to get into internships and partly because I uh, we moved states and it was just easier. And in that like gap time while I was working and getting experience, I also started seeing a therapist about my own stuff. And that therapist who I still see today is the person who introduced recovery to me and recovery in the form of intuitive eating, in the form of uh, health at every size and body acceptance. And I was probably really resistant for a while. I think she was probably like kind of maybe laughing at some of the books I would bring in that were like, well, this person lost weight while they were on an eating disorder recovery. And like, I definitely pushed those limits a little bit, but I sat through it and worked through it and stayed with that therapist and got really passionate about it in the process to the point where I actually was questioning whether or not I could be a dietitian with these beliefs because it was so ingrained. It was, I didn't, I wasn't taught at all how to be a dietitian without prescribing diets. Like that is not something that you're taught. You're literally tested on like diets in order to get the credential and calories. And again, in certain therapeutic settings, those have merit. Yeah. But for the vast majority of people who are not in a hospital or clinical setting, they're sending the wrong messages and reinforcing unhealthy messages. Exactly. Yeah. It's useful for ICU care and stuff, but beyond that, it's pretty, just not great. And yeah, I really considered whether or not I could do it, but with therapy, I, and a lot of encouragement, I think for my therapist and people around me that I didn't have to be that kind of dietitian. So I went through with, and I also paid a lot of money for school. So I went through with the internship and I became a dietitian and I actually went straight into private practice. I had a couple of side jobs as well because private practice is hard to do when you're first starting out, but I just kind of jumped right in because I, I couldn't like be morally, like ethically and morally against what I believed. So I didn't. And that was where my career with intuitive eating and career with body acceptance started. So Amy, can I ask you when you were struggling and you're thinking, gosh, can I even 
be in this profession as a dietetics educator. Like that makes me so sad, but it also makes me realize like, no, that's exactly why you need to continue in this profession. The profession of nutrition and dietetics needs more diversity, needs a wider thought to cast a wider net with regards to the way that people can be treated and deal with food and talk about food. So what made you stick with it? Like, did you find a dietitian mentor that you're like, oh, this is my person or these are my people? So I was really encouraged by my my therapist in the same way of like being told, if you don't do this, then who is there? It's just more thin white people doing the same thing. And so I went, I went to my internship. I went to, my internship was in Iowa. So I went to Iowa for a week to start it off. And actually while I was there, I was so surprised by this and so happy about it. One of the, not preceptors, but the instructors for the program, it gave a presentation on health at every size. And I was pleasantly surprised and shocked and happy and just grateful. Wait, had you not had that as part of your undergraduate training? Like, No. So the, your first exposure to health at every size was when you started your dietetic internship? Well, it was with my therapist, but the first okay. professional introduction I had was in my internship, was in that like first week of my internship. And could you briefly describe what health at every size is? Because I think some people might not be familiar with that approach. Absolutely. So health at every size is the idea that you can pursue health at any size. Pursuing health is, is something that can be done regardless of body size, regardless of what your weight is and whether or not you lose weight. It looks at weight as more of a, it's not a behavior. Weight is a just factor. Like if you have a receding hairline and you're a man, it's a similar factor you can't control. And it just allows you to be in your body without that guilt and shame of needing to change it while allowing you to pursue health or pursue the parts of health that are important to you. So how did you come to be connected with the intuitive eating approach? And does that grow out of haze? Are they parallel? How would you describe the relationship with health at every size and intuitive eating? I think for me, they have to be connected. I don't think everyone believes that. Some people can separate the two of them. I'm not really sure how, because for me, they feel intrinsically linked. It feels very just natural to move into the space where you can trust your body, where you trust that your body is okay and that you can feed your body and your size doesn't dictate what you can and can't eat. And we let go of a lot of the myths around nutrition and health and yeah. So they kind of grew together. <laughs> I love that you share your personal experiences in your writings, your work, even like the first five minutes of this interview. I'm like, I know so much more about you. And I'm curious, would you be willing to share any memories you had from the time when you were starting Solid Foods with your daughter? So my daughter was born while I was in college. I think I was a junior in college. And so at the time I wasn't really in this world yet. We were, I was definitely more diety. I was definitely more in my eating disorder. And I remember having so much fear that she would like the sugary foods more than she would like like healthy foods. I remember like wanting to go out of my way to like make sure her first foods were the right first foods. And that was a, that was a doozy looking back at it. <laughs> and she was interested in all foods. She was interested in a lot as a kid. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma. 
but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So your book touches briefly on baby led weaning. I was kind of surprised, like I read the whole thing cover to cover. And there's not a mention of baby led weaning until almost the end. So I'm curious about your personal thoughts on baby led weaning and you will not offend my, you won't hurt my feelings if you say you hate it. But I asked your co-author Sumner this, we did a part one of this series, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, interviewing Sumner. But I wanted to ask you, could you share your insights, what your thoughts about baby led weaning and then if you see baby led weaning fitting into the intuitive eating model? Absolutely. I know we consciously put it at the end of the book, not because we thought it was less important or because we didn't want to talk about it too much. It was because it fit more in with the nutrition and the ideas of feeding. And for us, we're dietitians, obviously. So nutrition and methods and stuff like that is really important. And also with this whole process, it felt like some of the least important stuff, knowing like sugar content and stuff like that didn't feel as important as knowing how to support your child and how it could be okay. So that's why it's toward the end. And I didn't start off feeding my child with a baby led weaning. However, we switched to it after a couple months because it was great. Like I knew what it was going into being a parent. Which most dietitians don't. So congratulations. <laughs> I had a good professor in college for that one, which was good. Um, we had a cool like pregnancy, early childhood nutrition class, which was really awesome. But I switched to it because I was curious and because feeding a baby with a tiny spoon is sometimes really annoying and that food is, is expensive. So it was a, it was a choice. And she took to it really fast. Like it was, she caught onto it really quickly and I liked it. It was, I mean, I was, I swear, I remember one time we were at a restaurant and she didn't want to eat any of like the soft foods we were giving her, any of the foods she could, we were like giving her like pieces of like tortilla. We were at a Mexican restaurant, a piece of avocado. She ate an entire jar of sour cream was her choice because that's what it's like is baby led weaning. They just get to choose like what they're eating. And she chose the sour cream for some reason. It is so fascinating and so self life affirming to hear you, someone who talked openly about your eating disorder, say how happy you were to see your daughter like food. Like that's so cool. A lot of parents, they, they internalize their own struggles with food and they can't be happy about anything related to food. And I know you talked about the importance of therapy and I'm by no means an eating disorder dietitian, but I just really wanted to point out like you're smiling while you're talking about your daughter learning how to eat. I remember feeling so motivated to keep her safe from this. There was like at the time when I was more in my eating disorder, I definitely, my pressure, the pressure I was feeling was more to keep her thin and coming from two parents who aren't, who were never super thin. My husband's very athletic build, but was a kind of chubby kid. And I was never thin. It was really scary for me to think that she could be a larger child. I remember that was one of my main things, but like my own fears, but I really didn't want her to feel the same way about food that I did. That was one thing that even if I was trying really hard to make sure she ate enough vegetables to make sure she, her first, because she developed the taste for vegetables before she developed a taste for sugar, because that's what I was doing at the time. I wanted her to not hate herself over food the way I did when I was a kid. And that was, I don't know, that didn't really fit with what I was doing. It didn't really fit with what I was 
feeling. It was one of those cognitive dissonances that I really felt. And I think it ended up being really powerful because it kind of became a motivator to allow her to eat. It was a thing that like, let me feel okay to give her a cake at her first birthday and to feed her food, you know? In your book, you mentioned three key concepts that provide guidance around an area that plays into a big picture, like how we support our kids and their innate intuitive eating wisdom. So you have key two in the book, which is implement a flexible and reliable feeding routine. And you highlight the importance of maintaining a feeding routine, but I like that you chose the word flexible. So for parents who are just starting solid foods, a lot of times they're like really, really, really set on the schedule. This is my schedule. This is our sleep schedule. This is our milk schedule. How is being flexible important when you're starting solid foods? Flexibility, I think, is probably one of the most important things to learn in all of this and a lot of things because life is never stagnant. It's never the same for a lot of reasons. Everything from our day-to-day schedule changes, whether it's, I don't know, you get more sleep because you're not feeling like you got enough. So breakfast is later to work schedules different to you're hungrier one day. I feel like that's an important piece as well. Like food needs change as well for us and for our kids. And that flexibility allows for that. That flexibility allows for us to be, to be able to move with the life that we have, to be able to have the meals when we need them, the meals that we need, the snacks that we need. And I think one of the goals that Sumner and I had with that flexibility, and one of the reasons why we really wanted to push for that phrase is we can't control our kids' hungers. We also can't necessarily predict them. And that can start, I mean, heck, that starts as soon as they're born. You know, feeding on demand is really important for kids because they are hungry and we don't know what that is. And, you know, I think the feeding schedule thing of the past is pretty debunked at this point and pretty discouraged by a lot of organizations because kids know when they need to eat. And when we put them on schedules, it doesn't seem to work as well. There can be some benefit to schedules for some people. And also that flexibility is really important and we can hold that. And as kids get older, like when they move into toddlers and wobblers and get a little older, we do want to have some boundaries in the same way that we would if, you know, your kid is learning to walk and you want them to be able to fall down and learn how to get back up again and learn that they're going to be okay. But you don't want to want them to run into the street. Have a safe place where they can fail. A safe place where you don't have to be catching every mistake or on top of everything, but they're not going to go hungry. They're not going to not eat. So providing this structure of, well, we're going to have meals and we're going to have snacks and they're going to be reliably fed to you. That And that means not only every day these things are going to be available to you, but at reliable intervals. We try really hard not to go between lunch and dinner without providing a snack every day because without that reliability, that gap between lunch and dinner can be really big and really overwhelming for a tiny. Absolutely. And it depends on the individual family too, because some families eat their biggest meal in the middle of the day, at which point supper might look more like a snack. And so I always remind parents, you know, let your own family feeding schedule, look at that first and then build your child's around that. You don't have to conform. It blows my mind when I see these other bloggers and other Instagram sites that are teaching baby led weaning and to be honest, have no business teaching infant feeding. And they're saying things like a baby needs three meals and three snacks. Please show me the research and the evidence that supports that. Every family is different. Every baby is different. And it just sets parents up for failure when they think they need to follow this rigid schedule. But I agree with you, though, that in some families, certain schedules work. Like our situation, I never had a schedule when I had my oldest. My oldest is the same as your oldest. She's in second grade. Then I had a set of quadruplets when she was one. 
and sure as you know what, I needed a schedule because they would die if I didn't have a schedule. And so I feel like you're my therapist when like I definitely foisted a feeding schedule on our family just so that we could survive. And then we went on to have twins when the quads were one. So we had seven kids, three and under. And we were on the tightest schedule to the point where I couldn't leave and go do other stuff for a while, like until we got stabilized with them. Now that they're older, we're a little bit more lenient. But I love what you're talking about, like the reliable intervals. Like some children just do have inherent stress about food if they don't know that it's going to be there. So letting them know, yes, there will be food when you're hungry, but you also need to learn now that you can talk how to verbalize your hunger. And so much of the hunger stuff gets very confusing to parents because they think they start solid foods at six months of age to alleviate baby's hunger. And for those of you listening who have six and seven month old babies, we don't feed them food in response to hunger. Infant milk is still their primary source of nutrition. They need time to learn how to eat. That's the beauty of the weaning period. It's like, it's preseason. It's a practice. It doesn't matter. Give them lots of opportunities to practice so that as they get closer to one, food begins to supplant milk as their primary source of nutrition. But parents are like, I'm going to drop a bottle right now so that they feel hunger. It's like, oh, you're going to starve your six-month-old out. That is going to make them freak out. Then they're going to choke on food. Then they're going to have negative associations with food and feeding. And it's all sometimes parents just being so, so, so driven by a schedule that they think they have to adhere to. Absolutely. it's. I think it's really easy to forget that food between six and 12 months is for them to get used to taste and texture and just be with it and pick it up and get that. I thought you were going to say a food before one is just for fun. And people say, what do you think about that statement? I'm like, I have a love hate with that statement. Food before one is just for fun. Yes, I want you to have fun. Like you should have fun. Like when Amy's smiling, talking about her daughter doing baby led weaning, like that lights up my life. That's why this is all I do every day is to see that reaction in parents, especially parents who have a history of or an active eating disorder who are like, whoa, it doesn't have to be like this for my child. But on the other hand, saying it's just fun implies like, should my baby have flaming Hot Cheetos and regular Dr. Pepper? Like, mm, as a dietitian, I can't really endorse that. And I want you to be thoughtful and intentional about the foods that you're selecting, but not to the point where you are, you are stressing about. Yes. The best way to think about it is to give them the foods that you're eating. Like, obviously not flaming Hot Cheetos. My kid would have screamed. She still probably would, honestly. But to give them, like, if you're having spaghetti, give them a little bit of spaghetti. To have them have a bit of a taco that you're eating, you know, just like it's about the experience for them. For fun, yes, but also because that ability to learn how to chew food, to swallow food, to accept different textures, to move your hand from plate to mouth. Because, you know, we've all watched a kid who tries to move their hand from plate to mouth and it ends up on forehead. And hence the mac and cheese hair that my daughter had for a good six months. And that is a really important thing. And you asked earlier how baby led weaning fits, fits into intuitive eating, if I think that it does. I think that it's not like if you didn't have baby led weaning as a child yourself or your kids didn't, I don't think it means that they're not going to be intuitive eaters. Like it's not like this crucial end all be all because nothing is. Correct. There's no research that shows that. Not at all. And I think that if they are fed in this way and we continue to support that autonomy and we continue to support that trust with their body and trust with food and trusting them, then it naturally falls into intuitive eating as we move through childhood. We're all intuitive eaters born with very few exceptions. And the only thing we can really do as parents is continue to support that. And this is one of those things that can be really supportive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) Well, 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I love the many benefits of baby-led weaning. And one of them, you have to be just careful when you choose your words, I'm saying to myself, is we talk about the potential for babies to learn to listen and respond to their own innate hunger and fullness cues. Down the road, that is important. Like we've talked about responsive feeding and on-demand feeding. And we, the baby turns their head away from the bottle or the breast when they're full. Why at six months of age do we take that autonomy away and start shoving an arbitrarily selected amount of smashed bland baby food down their throat, assuming that now they're not, now they're not playing any role in hunger and fullness. But sometimes parents hear, well, that means with baby led weaning at six months of age, I need to let them tell me when they're hungry. And we need to remember that, again, the babies are not eating in response to hunger when they're learning how to eat food. But if we step back and we give them this practice period, they will then grow into, as you said, this innate capacity that they have as intuitive eaters. But it doesn't happen overnight. They need to practice learning how to eat so that in turn, they can listen and respond to those hunger and fullness cues. Would you agree? Absolutely, I would agree. And I think thinking of, you know, we're not feeding our kid on demand this food when we start, you know, at six months of age, starting to feed them. Because a kid might turn away from the bottle or turn away from the breast when they're not hungry anymore or when they don't need any more milk if they have that cue for themselves. But the hand and mouth cue of, you know, that new cue isn't the same for babies. It's their mouth, I can't remember the exact word, but like mouth explorers, they explore everything with their mouth. They have a, a oral fixation. And just because, you know, your kid is putting your shoe in their mouth doesn't mean that they are hungry. It means that they're putting food in their mouth, which is one of the reasons why we can't rely on their hunger cues that they can't vocalize. They can't be on crying or maybe, you know, signing for milk or something at that age. We can't rely on their hunger cues to tell us when to give them solid foods in that age, which is why it's not a, it's not crucial for feeding. It's not the, this is what we do to get you full is by giving you this pile of avocado or this pile of spaghetti. It is about learning the texture, learning the food, knowing that they will see something in front of them and put it in their mouth. Kind of the goal of that, of that experience, but it's not to fill up their stomach. It's not, not to do those things. That is still the milk. It's like your insurance policy is what I tell parents, like lean into it. Now, granted, you got to keep trying new foods because eventually you want to stop breastfeeding someday. And you definitely want to stop buying formula if you're doing that. So like we need your baby to get most of their nutrition from food. And, and it ends up, I would say, the two biggest saboteurs of the one-year-old diet in my, just purely anecdotal, my experience of over 20 years as a dietitian and having seven kids is milk and snacks. Too much milk and too many snacks. And it's not rocket science. If your kid's stomach is full of milk and or snacks, they will never eat the wholesome meals that you're preparing and putting on the table. Like it's just not gonna work. And yet parents rip their hair out about it. We look at how much milk is your baby or child drinking, and then how many snacks are they having? And a lot of times it's snacks that are out of control, right? Like you talk so much in the book about the food environment and what we're up against as parents. But like a lot of parents, working parents, well, they feed them all these snacks at daycare. I'm like, well, who pays for daycare? You, okay. Just like if you had a super weird, you know, I want the left butt cheek cleaned with this cream and the right one with that. They do it. Like you're allowed to set your own rules about food. You don't have to just say, well, everybody gets goldfish. So my kid is full of goldfish when they come home. How do you deal with that? Because you have a second grader who's in the real world with snacks. And I think you guys spend so much time talking about snacks in the book. And I was like, just nodding my head the whole time I was reading that section. I'm like, yes, this is real life. But also I'm not powerless against snacks as a parent. Yeah. As a parent and as a dietitian, I'm pretty pro snack in general. It's the timing of the snack. 
like my daughter is, she's eight, she's really active. She has some sensory issues that require a lot of movement to keep her like aware of her body. So we do swim, we do dance, we do occupational therapy. The kid is moving all the time after school. And sometimes that throws off the schedule a little bit because that's what happens when you're a parent. (laughs) The schedule is never quite what you want it to be. And that means that we can be, we have to be flexible. That's where that flexibility is important. And it also means that we can still have some control of that. Like if she comes home from dance, which she does come home from dance around 5.30 and we usually eat dinner around 6 or 6.30 on those days. When she comes home from dance, she's hungry. She's had no snacks since lunch? No, she has She has a snack okay. after school usually. But she comes home from, from dance hungry because she had a snack, which probably didn't last, like got her through dance, but now she's hungry and ready for dinner. But dinner might not be immediate. So she'll come home from dance and usually say, I'm hungry. You know, can I have a snack? And because I know dinner is within half an hour, an hour, the answer is usually no, but no in a way of no, because we're going to have dinner soon. And I made you a dinner and I would like you to eat it. Have you actually made dinner by that point? Because sometimes I lie. I'm like, oh, because we're having dinner. I'm like, I know you're not even close to having dinner done yet. I'm like, oh, they're right. Okay, fine. You can have a snack because I'm, I'm running late on dinner. Like that's my fault. That's on me. I've definitely done that before. I've yeah. definitely been like, I have not set foot in the kitchen yet. And like last night, like for example, this is a good example. It was a weird night. We, she had late swimming lessons and I had dog training until like 7.30 or something. So we decided to order dinner and it didn't get there until like eight o'clock, which was a half an hour before bedtime. So it was like really quick, eat your food, go to bed. But when I came home from dog training, she was, she looked at me and said, I'm hungry for dinner. I'm like, I know dinner will be here in 10 minutes. Like, I'm so sorry. But she got a little snack when she came home. She had some yogurt or something and she was fine. And that's your flexible scheduling in place. I could literally talk to you all day long. Like what do intuitive eating dietitians do in real life when their kids are like, I want a snack? The answer is it's different every day. And I, I love that you point out it's the timing of the snacks and the timing of the foods. And just to remind parents, there's no right or wrong time to feed your baby. Parents say, well, what time should I do dinner? My only suggestion is if you're introducing allergenic foods, we know that if a baby's going to have a reaction to a food, it will occur within minutes up to no more than two hours following ingestion. So if you're feeding the baby two minutes before bed and two hours later they have a reaction and you're asleep and the baby's asleep, that's not ideal. So maybe do allergenic foods earlier in the day. But other than that, do what works for your family. Also keeping in mind that like, Milk is the baby's insurance policy. They're getting most of their nutrition. Your daughter is going to be getting most of her nutrition from meals. So a snack here and there is not going to throw you off in most cases. Absolutely. She has dinner and then she has a snack before bed, but she would have had milk before bed when she was an infant. And that is kind of how it shifted. Okay, for our parents, before they leave, because they all, you guys got to go get this book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. It's written by Sumner, who was on episode 210, and Amy, who's doing part two today. And I love that you guys Join forces, you're two registered dietitians, but you're also real life people, which you could really sense that throughout the book. And I appreciate you kind of weaving in your own personal stories without like telling your life story. But I was like, I could see myself having that same situation with my kids. So thank you for sharing that in your book. For our parents, what tips do you have? Like anything tangible, specific recommendations? And don't be afraid to say things not to say, because I love to ask experts of your caliber, like, What are the words we should not be saying? Because everyone talks about the positive language and I have to practice that. It does not come naturally to me. But like, what do we not say to jack up our kids' relationship with food if you have any tips for us? I think it's absolutely important to keep the good and bad out of food, to not talk about this being a good food, this being a bad food, this being something that we, even like words like treat and stuff can be kind of tricky because it means special occasion or we only have very rarely, which just builds it up and makes it really exciting. So keeping the good and bad out of it, keeping the 
neutrality in there is really important. How about at the table at mealtimes? Words to say or not say? At mealtimes, definitely continuing to neutralize that food. The more we talk about food being bad, the more we start to associate with our body. I actually recommend not talking about what kids are and are not eating at meals. I always tell parents that we don't have to talk the whole time. Let the baby learn how to eat. You watch some of these videos. I'm like, just stop talking. The baby needs to learn how to eat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, especially at that age, like it's just food. Like it's just, just let it be. We don't need to make any comments about food while we're eating food ever. You do not have to go "Mm, mm, mm, mm," to let the baby think that what they're eating is yummy. Like they're enjoying it regardless. Yes, absolutely. And they're going to develop their own opinions about it. And that's totally fine. And just really taking all of that out of it and just letting food be food, letting food be disassociated from a body, letting it not be beyond, you know, this food is going to give you energy to go run around with your friends, maybe, but not "Mm, this food isn't good for your body or this food's going to make your body feel sick or this food's going to do this to your body. We don't need to do that. We don't need to let our kids know that, I don't know, sugar will make them crash later or I don't know, vegetables. Which isn't actually true. Even when adults say it, I'm like, you understand it's a carbohydrate and it fuels the body, but okay. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your personal story, your professional approach, a little bit about your book. Tell us where we can go to learn more and also where should we go to buy your book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater? The book is available and there's lots of information about it, places to ask questions at, well, anywhere books are sold. And also our website for the book is Intuitive Eating for Kids. That's number four. I personally am to be found at prospernutritionwellness.com is my website. Um, That's where I have my private practice and everyone who works for me. Um, You can find me on social media at Amy is talking on Instagram and Amy Severson on Twitter. And that's me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amy. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was really great to talk to you. Wow. We touched on a lot of different points in that interview. I could have talked to Amy all day long. I actually did end up talking to her for a long time after the interview. And I was telling her, like, you have such an amazing way with words. Like, it's not that often that you meet a practitioner for whom the language that they're speaking about just comes so naturally, especially when you're talking about what can be really heavy topics, what are very heavy topics, like fat acceptance and body positivity. So I cannot recommend Amy and Sumner's book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, enough. It is available, as she mentioned, anywhere books are sold, but I'm going to link all of Amy's locations, her private practice, her book, her social handles, et cetera, on the show notes for this episode, which you guys can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 212. Thanks for being here for this interview with Amy Severson about how to raise an intuitive eater. 